0: I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton.
1: I'm Erin Scala.
0: And here's our show today. Aaron Miller on the show, winemaker at Plumpjack Winery in Napa Valley in Oakville. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? Very nice to see you. You as well. So Plumpjack's pretty interesting in that it is in Oakville and it's on a historical plot
1: that's actually been a vineyard for many, many years. Yeah. The winery was built in the 1880s and the vineyards have been there for quite a bit longer. Uh, at that time, it was mostly planted to Riesling and Zinfandel, some of the older varietals that people were bringing into the Napa Valley. And that piece of land was donated to George Yount by General Vallejo. General Vallejo owned a lot of the land in the Napa Valley, and a lot of that was given to George Yount as a dowry. And uh, eventually, that land passed through many hands over the years, and in the 1880s, a winery was built on that site, on the Jack site, and that winery was Villa Mount Eden. It's a very historical winery. It's still in existence today, just not at our site. Now it's being made elsewhere and it's actually different varietals, but the wine label does still exist. Uh, but Plump came in a little bit later, but you know, back to the 1880s you know, when uh, this winery was built, obviously it was just an old barn with nothing fancy. You know, it's not a gold lead certified winery you know, cause like we have now at Cade and Odette or sister wineries, uh, but it, it did the job. It was functional. Uh, eventually, you know, we don't really know the, the complete history, we think that during prohibition era, uh, and after the phylloxera outbreaks that the, the, they stopped making wine there, at least there's no record of wine being made in that era. Uh, but it's possible, you know, that they were making illegal wine there, but we have no record of that. Uh, so obviously if there's illegal wine being made, there's not much record of it. Uh, but going forward, the winery was not being utilized until the, about nineteen late 1960s, when the McWilliams family, uh, John and Ann McWilliams, purchased a property. And Ann McWilliams actually still lives on the property. And they recreated the Villa Mount Eden Winery. Uh, and that's why it is still in existence today. They made the brand, uh, reestablished the brand, and using th- that estate, also with different varietals, not necessarily Cabernet Sauvignon, but several different varietals, and had a good run at it for a while, and then decided eventually to sell off that brand and just lease out the property, uh, and Plumjack came in in 1995 and started our, our brand then. Uh, and in 1995, it was kind of this hodgepodge of uh, varietals. I mean, we were producing Zinfandel, Sangiovese, Riesling, Petit Syrah, Syrah, Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay. We had a wide wide range of varietals that we were producing. Uh, and it wasn't until 1998 when John Conover, our current general manager, came on board. That he decided that we needed some focus and thought that we should really focus on Cabernet Sauvignon and pare down other varietals down to, at that time, just Chardonnay and Merlot and then the estate cab and the reserve cab. And it wasn't until later that we actually picked up a little bit of straw in the early 2000s, about 2002, 2003, picked up a little bit of straw. So it's 42 acres of vineyard today. Right. Was it 42 acres when it was Villa Mount Eden or...? No, it was, it was significantly more, actually. There was, I don't know the exact acreage, but there was significantly more acreage. Some of that was sold to uh, Betty O'Shaughnessy next door to where, where Turnbull Vineyards is now, just to the north of us, and also a little bit to the south where the uh, St. Eden Vineyards for Bond. So a lot of those blocks were sold off, kind of parceled off. And what is Plump Jack now was retained, but uh, some of that was sold off when it was uh, under the ownership of the Mick Lames family. So do you have old maps or
0: diaries or writings from the time that kind of said about that parcel? I mean, I know it's more than one parcel today, but about the 42 acres that you found? We do have maps.
1: Yeah, we do have maps that show the old blocks. for, And, you know, at the time, the nomenclature of the blocks, the block names, were A through M. And you look at, a, you know, the old maps and you can see where all those blocks are. And it, they're kind of spiraled through from the outside A, spiraled to the middle M. And today we... We only have H through M. So, you know, we've lost many of those blocks, uh, but they were smaller blocks on the outskirts. And some of them aren't necessarily good for Cabernet Sauvignon, but some of them are really, were really great for Cabernet. And the Turnbull, for example, the La Fortuna Vineyard and some of those other blocks are, you know, the Bond Vineyard are really great blocks for Cabernet Sauvignon, obviously. So it would be wonderful to still have those, but uh, unfortunately, we don't. But what we do have is, is excellent. Yeah, a lot of it is alluvial fans from uh, the Vaca mountain range. So volcanic soils, very rocky soils, perfect for Cabernet Sauvignon. And the Cabernet Sauvignon thrives there uh, in the sense that it is a little stressed and uh, maybe not so happy. So it makes great Cabernet Sauvignon. But it's it's interesting what you have because some parts are more clay and some parts
0: mm-hmm. are more volcanic, right? Mm-hmm. Off the Vacas, like you said.
1: That's true. So our estate, that's the 42 acres, and we actually only have about 35, 36 planted today. But off of the estate, the soil profile changes significantly throughout 42 acres. We actually have a little bit more, uh, but some of it is, is Sauvignon Blanc, and that's actually planted in clay. So we have about five acres of Sauvignon Blanc that is planted in clay that is not good for Cabernet Sauvignon, and that's on the far west side, closer to the center of the valley. And that goes to one of the other wineries? That goes to Cade, yes. So Cade makes a Sauvignon Blanc. They make an estate Sauvignon Blanc from that fruit. But the rest of the vineyard, the other 42 acres... Which we have planted to Bordeaux varietals is really excellent for Cabernet Sauvignon. And the Cabernet Sauvignon expression does change throughout the vineyard because of the soil profile. Uh, so we only run a few hundred yards east to west. Uh, but on the east side of the estate, where you're closer to the mountain range and you have more of that alluvial fan, deeper soils, rockier soils, really gravelly soils, you get these really dark expressions of Cabernet Sauvignon. You know, the fruit is smaller. Uh, smaller clusters, smaller berries, uh, just lower yields in general. And because you have those smaller grapes, when you're putting all those grapes into the fermenter, you have more skins, less juice. And so when you have more skins, less juice, you get more concentration. And that side of the vineyard tends to have that power. And that's where we source our reserve Cabernet Sauvignon from. And as you move to the west, you start to pick up more clay soils. So so you start with more loamy soils, which is a blend of sand, silt, and clay. And then like a clay loam, which is heavier clay, but still with a lot of sand and silt as well. And when you move to those soils, you pick up more red fruit, you get a little bit of uh, more fresh herbs, mint and sage, and you tend to get more elegance on the palate. A little bit more acid, a little bit lighter on the palate. And so our estate blend is actually a blend of the entire estate. So you get all of those elements in one bottle. You get a really great, nice balance, nice harmony uh, with the black fruit, blue fruit, red fruit, mint, sage, A little bit of like a graphite character as well, but some good structure, good power, and also really nice elegance. So really, when you look at the difference between the
0: estate cab and the reserve cab from Plumpjack, both of which you make, the difference is actually soil-based.
1: The the largest difference is soil-based. We also do other treatments as well. You know, we have different oak treatments, different aging treatments. So when I am aging the, the wines, the reserve is aged 100% new oak. And for a little longer, about 22, 23 months versus 18, 19 months on the estate cab. So they are a little different, but we age them differently and use different oak treatments because the wine kind of calls for different treatment. That really big, robust Cabernet Sauvignon on the east side, that darker fruit, it needs a little bit more oak for any oak to show. Um, you know, we don't want to over oak it, obviously, but using 100% new oak is actually just enough to break through a little bit um but if you did that on the the fruit from the west side if you used 100% new oak it would completely dominate the wine uh it wouldn't show well at all so you need to do different treatments for each of those wines uh and so we found you know through some trial and error that the reserve can take a little bit more oak whereas the estate needs less
0: but it's also like in terms of what grape varieties you use you know when you use the petit Verdot, and then how you approach the pressing right
1: yeah we because the especially the pressing uh, well, obviously the Petit Verdot as well, but depressing specifically because the fruit from the east side, those volcanic soils is bigger. We don't use press fractions because the press fractions have more tannin. You're squeezing the grapes and you're getting more structure out of it. You're, getting, you're extracting more tannin when you're shearing the grapes and squeezing it. So we just use a free run for the reserve. And even with the estate, we'll keep the press fractions separate for some time until we can evaluate it and, and see how we want to use it. But the press fraction tends to help the estate because it, like I said, it does have a lot of elegance. It doesn't have as much structure and that press fraction can actually bring a little bit of structure to the wine and help balance it. And you do a lot of press cuts. We do, yeah. We start very, very small. So we, obviously we take free run, we just drain the tank and then we do a very light pressing and sometimes that light pressing will go into the free run. Uh, but when we start increasing the pressure a little bit, uh, I'll take a press cut and, uh, be technical, but around 0.4 bars, we'll start taking a press cut. And then maybe around 0.8, I'll change over to another press cut and start doing a high press press cut. Uh, and then maybe you press up to maybe 1.4 bars before I stop. Uh, and around then you start getting a lot of extraction and the wines tend to be bitter and phenolic. And so
0: it gives you a chance to say like, okay, this is the character of this, this vintage. This is what was going
1: on with the fruit and Maybe I'll blend these press cuts back in, or maybe I won't. Right. And generally in the reserve, we don't. You know, and in the state, we, we can. And I just need to be careful when I'm doing the pressing, because if I press too hard, you can end up with a lot of phenolic, bitter character. And so we try to avoid that. And you can see that early on. So you do your first, you know, your first couple of ferments and get press fractions from those ferments. And you can see if you overdid it. And you can use that as somewhat of a guide for future blocks, you know, future fermentations, Uh, but not completely. You can't just trust that on blind faith because each block is going to be a little bit different. The soil profiles are slightly varied uh, throughout the vineyard. Even when you're in, you know, that volcanic soil, one block is going to be a little bit different from the next. And on top of that, you had different clones, uh, different pick dates, different levels of ripeness, and they just behave a little differently in the fermenter. So you can have Extract a little bit more in the fermenter, or a little less, and you're going to have to approach your press a little bit different because of that. So, if I see that I've at a certain pressure, it's a little too much going forward, I can just be a little more careful around there and and make sure I don't uh, take too much.
0: How is the ripening different on volcanic versus clay loam? Are the are the first of all? Let me ask you: Are the rows in the same direction?
1: The rows are not entirely in the same direction. So. Once we started replanting, some of the older blocks are about 25 years old and they're not quite north-south. They're more actually perpendicular to the Oakville Crossroad. Uh, so that's kind of how people planted then. We just, you know, what made the most sense as far as uh, what is easiest convenience. Uh, but now we're seeing if we turn the rows a little bit and do true north-south, we get better results. So a lot of the west side is still their older vineyards and in the more convenient row orientation. Whereas the east side, we've been replanting, and most of that is true north south. So it is a little different there. But the soil profile does affect the ripening significantly. So we, just on this small block in 40 acres of land, uh, we have a difference from the east side to the west side generally of about three weeks from harvest times. And so that's a long time. That is, that is, I long, mean, that is a long time.
0: Napa standards, right? That's a long harvest period, right?
1: For one vineyard site, that's a pretty long harvest period. Yeah, and that's because of that soil profile. Those volcanic soils have more stress, and there's smaller yields, and those those grapes ripen faster. But the fruit on the west side, the heavier soils, ripen a little slower. So you have to wait a little bit longer to get more pyrazine degradation, more fruit building in the in the grapes. Before you really get to where you want to be as far as as ripeness for picking. So
0: you do have a host of different Bordeaux grape varieties planted on a property in red. And when you work with those different grape varieties, what are you finding in those different parcels?
1: Actually, we only have uh, Petit Bordeaux and Cabernet Sauvignon. We just planted some Malbec, and it's very young. We have harvested a couple of times, but we haven't used it in Cabernet Sauvignon yet. I've used it in Merlot. Uh, but the Petit Verdot we've had for quite some time, and it adds a lot. We only need to use a little. We only have uh, one and a half acres planted on the estate, and it works really well with our wine. And sometimes we use it in the reserve. Sometimes we use it in the estate. Sometimes we use it in both. It just depends on how it works with that wine and the quality of the of the Petit Verdot in that vintage. Uh, it's just like any other wine, any other varietal. Sometimes it does really well in a vintage, and sometimes it does a little more, more poorly. And it doesn't respond necessarily the same way as Cabernet Sauvignon. In a good year for Cabernet Sauvignon, Petit Verdot is not necessarily gonna be really nice. You know, it could actually perform a little, little uh, worse. So, but it's alternatively when the cab in that area is not as good, sometimes Petit Verdot is great. So you have to really try it and, and see how you wanna use it. Um, and generally we use a little bit in both. Because it does help the, both blends, and it usually is a really nice varietal for us. But we have to determine how we want to use it. And, and to do that, I just do a lot of blends, a lot of trial blends. So I'll just take a small percentage of Petit Four Dough, you know, I'll make, uh, start my reserve blend, for example, just by trying a few different blocks that I think on their own are excelling. And I will take those blocks and start blending them together and just do blind tastings. And then come up with kind of a base blend. just a small blend to begin with. And then see how I can work Petit Verdot in, if I can work Petit Verdot in. Uh, The Petit Verdot has a lot of color, a lot of structure, and some nice aromatics that can work really well with the wine. And because of all that color, it actually adds some uh, long-term stability as well to structure and color. So uh, I like to use it when I can, because it can add a little bit of stability when you're blending it with the cab. But uh, it doesn't always work. And so we'll start with just one, two, three, four, five percent, and see if that works. You know, maybe just try five different blends from zero to even ten. If I want to see what the extreme does, uh, generally I wouldn't use that much in the wine. But sometimes it's good when you're doing these trials to see what an extreme does, to see how it really affects the wine, and then back off. So generally, we're usually in the you know, two to six percent range, you know, sometimes seven. So, but it does add a lot to the wine. When you sit there with trial blends, what's in your mind?
0: Like, uh, is there an idea of what plumjack is, or is it an idea to get a certain vintage character
1: of that year? What's important? Those—they're both important. Those are all very important. So, obviously, we want to keep the plumjack style. I don't want to make something that isn't plumjack. So, I want to make sure that the Cabernet Sauvignon has those typical Oakville and Plumjack Estate characters. Uh, at the same time, <clears throat> I want to make the best wine that I can from that vintage. And that's kind of where I start with those two factors. The best wine for the vintage and is this wine, Plum check. When uh, root- you measure that best part, what's that, be- like, what's that
0: based on? Is that a, a tannin signature or a fruit signature?
1: It's richness of the fruit. Yeah, the richness of fruit and, all, and definitely structure as well. But just nice balance. And generally, I'll just start with the reserve and start building the reserve and try to get the best blocks in that vintage from the estate and start blending those and see, you know, how, how much can I blend and still have it be the best, you know, cause once it starts, you know, not being the best blend anymore, then obviously you've gone too far and you've made too much. So you just kind of start from, you know, with minimally with as little as you can and build from there and see how much you can make of the best, you know, with the reserve and then start working on the estate after we do the reserve because we want to, retain the best blocks for the reserve, and then what's left is generally going to be the estate. So you used to work as a an
0: knowledgeist at Groth, and that's also based in Oakville. So right. when you look at that Oakville fruit versus the Oakville parcel that you work today, did you notice anything about Oakville as a whole or, or the differences between those two?
1: There is a lot of variability throughout Oakville. Uh, so you couldn't really compare them. They're not the same soil profiles uh, at Groth or at Plum Jack. Uh, as I mentioned, Plumjack has that alluvial fan, so a lot of the soils are that volcanic soil. The groth soils, actually, it it's kind of a strange phenomenon. And uh, I was talking to David Howell, who wrote the Winemakers Dance, and he was saying that the, those soils shouldn't be there, really. I mean, it's those soils got there from basically like Pope Valley because of the Ice Age. Uh, not that the glaciers were bringing soils down the valley, but because the The ocean levels were so low that basically like how the Grand Canyon was formed, there was more gravity, there was more water being pulled down the valley, and it was just ripping through the valley and pulling soils from further north in the valley down into the ocean. And much of those soils just went out into the San Francisco Bay, which was pretty far inland at the time because the ocean was pretty far out. And a lot of those soils were deposited out in the ocean, but some of them were deposited in different places throughout the valley. And Groth is one of those places. You know, Groth had these soils deposited from those northern regions in the Napa Valley, and they're nice rocky soils. But they're also surrounded by more loam and more clay. So they, in a, in a sense, got very lucky when they bought that piece of land, because it shouldn't necessarily be there, that those soils, but they are. So is there a big difference between east, west,
0: and center Oakville in terms of conditions for growing?
1: Yeah, a lot of the central part of the valley has more clay, heavier soils. And you'll tend to see more Sauvignon Blanc planted in those areas, a little bit of Chardonnay. uh, Whereas the edges of the valley, east and west side, will have more Cabernet Sauvignon. And I think you'll see a lot of the best Cabernet Sauvignons on the far east and far west, where there's more those alluvial fans. The east side, like I mentioned, has the runoff, the alluvial fans from the Vaca mountain range in the West side has the alluvial fans from the Mayacamas mountain range. So they are different. The makeup of the soils is different. And I think the wines can be different as well, but they always seem to have that signature Oakville character, uh, which to me seems to be kind of a, a sage character. Cause sometimes people talk about
0: Rutherford dust, or I have my own ideas of what spring mountain or how mountain tastes like, but for mm-hmm. you, you get a kind of a sage note on Oakville.
1: I do. I do. And I, I call it, I, I think it's more of a sanguine character. It's almost like you cut your finger and you, you stick it in your mouth to stop the bleeding. You get a little bit of that kind of bloody character. And I, I say it's sanguine, uh, but it has a really strong resemblance to sage as well. And some people prefer the word sage to bloody. <laughs> when you so, if you slash one. open your finger, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when you're talking about wine, we tend to talk about sage rather than blood. But it, I think it's a, a similar character. It's kind of an iron rich uh, aromatic, uh, and, and it's a, a really interesting note that I think a lot of Oakville wines carry, and uh, and the, I I look for it in the wine. I think the wine should have that note in it. So. Uh, when I'm making our blends, I try to make sure that we have that signature. Do you find iron in that soil, in that clay soil? <laughs> Not so much in the clay soil, but there is in the rockier soils. The soils have a red tint to them, and that's you know, oxidized iron. Um, so back to that grape variety thing, you, know, you said sometimes Petit Verdot
0: is great, sometimes it's poor. When it's poor, why is it poor, and what do you have to be
1: careful of with Petit Verdot? You know, if it's a little bit cooler, I don't know if it does as well. I think it likes a little bit warmer seasons. And what you have to be careful with with Petit dough, which is easy to do, is over-extraction and kind of uh, not necessarily green, like herbaceous green, but just unripe. You can get a lot of stemmy character in the Petit Verdot. You can really over-extract it. It's really big on tannin. And if you make it too big, then it's just clumsy and uh, a little bit, uh, kind of obtrusive. It's just angular, it's bitter, and it's not really helpful. So part of that is seasonal, but also part of it's winemaking. If you do overdo the Petit dough, then, uh, it's, I don't, I, w- I don't like to use it in the reserve cab if it's overdone just because the reserve cab already has so much weight and structure. Uh, it, I don't want to add to it and add a bitter note uh, I tend to be able to blend it into the estate cab and it'll add a little bit of structure and that bitterness won't come out so much.
0: Do you find Petit Verdot very variable with the
1: ripening curve or is it fairly consistent as to when it's ripened? We start raising a little bit later and we see the fruit ripen a little bit later, generally. Not a lot later. I still am bringing it in. It's, it's around the same time I'm bringing some of the cab in, you know, because like I said, we have that three-week three window where we're bringing in Cabernet Sauvignon. But I'm not bringing it in at the very beginning of that. Where I'm bringing in the Cabernet Sauvignon from that same vineyard site, and so the Petit Verdot is also on that uh, on the east side, and I'm bringing in all that cab from the east side, let, leaving the Petit Verdot out there, and then work our way west as the west side is ripening, and then eventually get back to that Petit Verdot. Now are you working with a lot of different clones of Cabernet? Or we do have a lot of clones. We have clone seven, which is what most of the estate was planted to and we still have some Clone 7, which is a nice clone. Uh, Some of the newer plantings are Clone 2, Clone 4, we use 169, 191, and they all give a different character. They all add a little something else to the wine. My favorite on our estate right now is the Clone 4. I think that gives us a a lot of weight, a lot of concentration, a lot of power without being brooding wine. On the opposite end of the spectrum, we have Clone 169, which is also a very nice clone. But it's uh, even in those same soil profiles, those, uh, those rocky soil profiles, it tends to be a little bit more red-fruited, still really nicely structured, uh, a little more red-fruited, and not so much the blue and black fruit. So the clonal selection definitely has an impact on the, on the wine.
0: I feel like you have a lot of pieces when you do blending to work with.
1: Just with the Cabernet Sauvignon on its own, we probably have 15 or 16 different parcels that we work with that is clonal-dependent and site-specific different blocks on the estate and different clones within those blocks. And then we add in Petit Verdot. And like I mentioned earlier, we have a little bit of Malbec on site as well now. And in the future, I'll see how I want to use that, whether that will go into the reserve or into the estate. And uh, so we have, you know, a lot to work with when we're working on those reserve blends and on the estate blends. And sometimes I use some of that in the Merlot as well. Which is something you source from elsewhere. It's not on the Correct. Sites. We purchase our Merlot from a vineyard site in Oak Knoll. So it's a little bit cooler than oakville uh, but warmer than carneros where a lot of merlot is coming from as well i think merlot works really well in that oak knoll region it's just north of the city of napa and it's the perfect temperature for merlot in my opinion it's not too cool i feel like carneros can be a little bit too cool for merlot you get a little bit more earthy rustic notes from merlot and if you go further north into oakville for example saint helena calistoga I think it's a little bit too warm. You get more raisiny character, a little overripe Merlot. And this site here is, I think, just right. You know, it's like Goldilocks of Merlot, right?
0: What are some of the takeaways and the key differences between working with Cab and working with Merlot in
1: the winery side? I just don't don't try to extract as much as Cabernet Sauvignon. Take a little bit more gently. Um, Don't use as much oak. So... When we're aging the wine, we use about 60% oak on those wines, whereas our estate cab is about 75%. And as I mentioned, our reserve is 100% new oak. And also, something that you do different for our Merlot, it's kind of, I think it works really well with the Merlot, but also to differentiate it a little bit from other Merlots, is we use a little bit of American oak, only about 10%, but that 10% has an impact. Uh, American oak is very impactful. And just that 10% can give the wine a little bit of a smoky note. Uh, and kind of a sweetness to the nose as well, and a little bit more structure. And then, what was the decision making for planting the Malbec? Uh, we've used some Malbec in other wines, not for the Plumjack wines, but for Cade. Uh, we used a little bit of Malbec in the Cade Napa Valley blend, which is a blend of Napa Valley floor fruit, and it, it works really well in that. And we like the character of the wine. The Malbec, in what I'm seeing from Malbec so far, is that it has a ton of weight. It's a really big wine. As far as the body of the wine, but it doesn't have a lot of tannin, so it's not really highly structured. So you can get more weight, more mid palate from Malbec without additional tannin, without additional structure. So it's a, a neat blending tool in that respect. So it kind of
0: plays with the other end of the seesaw from Petit Verdot.
1: Exactly. Complete opposite end. Besides the color, they both have immense color, just beautiful, beautiful color. But whereas you're gonna get more tannin from the Petit Verdot, more structure, you're going to get more mid-pallet weight from the Malbec and without contributing more tannin. So you can use it in different ways. I feel
0: like something else that can affect palate weight is the stirring of the lees. And I feel like you do a little bit of that. Why do you do it? When do you do it?
1: We do some of that for all of our wines. For the Chardonnay, we do that for all of our barrels. Our Chardonnay is not typical Napa Valley Chardonnay at least not what people think of a typical Napa Valley Chardonnay it's mostly stainless steel fermented about 65% stainless steel 35% oak and we take that approach because we take the same approach with all of our wines to really showcase the the vineyard and the varietal and we feel that a lot of oak will really mask Chardonnay so we back off on the oak do stainless steel let the fruit shine through and the 35% oak that we do have we do a lot of barrel stirring on that to help build the body you know you're stirring up the lees It's mostly yeast cells. So you have these yeast that have settled down to the bottom and you stir them up. And over time, they start to lice, They start to break open and they release all these proteins into the wine. And that helps build the body of the wine. We do that with that 35% portion, that oak portion of Chardonnay to help build the palate on the wine, on the Chardonnay. And we also do that with our red wines. And for the red wines, the stirring is kind of a twofold thing. I like to do some stirring during malolactic fermentation just to keep everything moving a little bit. I don't know if it helps the progression of malactic fermentation, but it makes me feel good. (laughs) I feel like it does something for the malactic fermentation. So I stirred throughout that whole process, maybe once a week, maybe once every other week uh, to try to do that. But it also brings a little bit of oxygen into the wine and that can help with the development of the wine as well. Uh, And then obviously it helps just like the Chardonnay, it helps to build the body as well. And you
0: did work with Randy Lewis, and he's known for doing a lot of leaf stirring on Chardonnay, although your Chardonnays are so different. I wonder if you picked up anything while you were the assistant winemaker at Lewis.
1: For the Chardonnay specifically, yeah, of course. uh, I took some of that with me. I don't do malactive fermentation like they do, and I don't use as much oak as Lewis does. It is a completely different style of wine. But I do have similar approaches. Uh, My pressing strategy is pretty similar. You know, do a, a slower press time. Try to be a little bit more gentle on the press. For Chardonnay, go gentle and slow, almost like a champagne cycle where you're really gentle, really slow. And you just press a little bit at a time, let off the pressure, press a little bit more, let off the pressure. And you just keep doing that for a few hours, you know, so it's a little bit slower press time. Uh, And then in barrel, although I don't do malactive fermentation, I do stir them quite a bit so that I can build the body And I think that's really one of our only opportunities to the bold body in that wine because it is only 35% barrel fermented. So the stainless steel fermentation portion doesn't have as much weight, as much body. Uh, Although I do some stainless steel drums, so I can do stainless steel portion in a smaller vessel that we can stir. Uh, But most of the stainless steel portion is in a tank, which we can't really stir. So it does help. And something else that I took from it is some native fermentation. We weren't really doing much native yeast fermentation in Plumpjack Chardonnay before I arrived. And at Lewis, it's 100% native fermentation in, in the Chardonnay and their Sauvignon Blanc. So I brought that with me as well. And when you have a non-mallow chard, how, what's the pull for how long it
0: could go? Is that 10 years, 20 years?
1: I, you know, I've never, I haven't had this wine that far out. But I would say it can go, eight years is beautiful. So I think it can go, you know, 10, 15 years. I don't know if I would push it to 20 years, uh, but it's possible. You know, it'd be, it will be fun to try it when we have those 20 year old wines, especially the ones that are in screw cap to see how well those age. Because there is a, a history of using screw cap
0: and then also cork at plumpjack jack and then originally releasing them both to the customer to see what happened.
1: Right. Yeah, and that started back in 1997 Vintage in the year 2000 when we bottled the 1997 Vintage. And the this was kind of brought on by Gordon Getty, one of our founders. And he was seeing wines go through Plumjack Wine Shop that uh, were being returned because they were corked wines or through the Plumjack Cafe, which were being returned because they were corked wines. And uh, was wondering what what the kind of how it would affect the reputation of those businesses, but also uh, just wondering why the industry accepted that kind of failure. you know, you couldn't imagine in most industries that you know three percent or higher uh, rate of failure is acceptable. and so he he's a businessman, and he asked those questions, and he asked them uh, seriously and in a meaningful way. And John Conover, our general manager, he, Uh, took those questions to heart and started looking at uh, solutions. And what they looked at most seriously was the screw cap and decided to go ahead and do it. And uh, it was a huge risk for the company and uh, took a lot of, kind of took a lot of flack for it. Uh, Got a lot of hate mail, basically. Oh, yeah. (laughs) People that- The cork suppliers weren't so happy with them. Not not as, it was consumers. You know, people that thought that you guys are ruining this brand. You know, you guys are destroying this brand and you're going to fail. And, uh, you know, they signed they your mom, yeah, right. yeah, <laughs> like <exactly>. Mrs. Getty, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> so they, they didn't really you know listen to all the hate. They took the risk, you know, they, they are risk takers and that's why Plumjack has been so successful and that's why, you know, Gordon Getty has done so well in all of his businesses. I've heard that name before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, we went ahead and Gordon decided, you know, if you're going to do this, why why do this on the estate cab or the chardonnay or the merlot? Let's do it on our best wine. And uh, they decided to do it 50/50, half cork, half screw cap, and the wine is sold in pairs uh, or in six packs, two one and one or three and three. And basically it's inviting the consumer to the experiment. You know, we we've seen over time that the screw cap performs very well, and it's comparable to the the cork. It's a little different, just like I mentioned with the, the Chardonnay. But we've seen that over time that the screw cap is an incredible closure, and we want other people to see that as well. So when you know you're going to bottle under screw
0: cap, as you do, does that affect how you make some decisions earlier in the life of the wine?
1: We don't do anything different for those wines. We age all those wines the same. Our reserve cab, I put together that blend, put it in barrel, I age it, Uh, I rack it out every once in a while if I want to do any more blending or if I just feel like it needs to be racked. And then we bottle it and we bottle the cork and the screw cap on the same day, same treatment from the same tank, Uh, no differences whatsoever. And the wines, you know, the the way that we make the wines from the beginning uh, is not a reductive style. You know, we do use oxygen pretty liberally, especially up front with pump overs and and that sort of thing and our rackings. Uh, So, we have enough oxygen introduction early on in the wine that we don't have to worry about reduction in the wines. And the cork and screw cap are both just beautiful wines that open up very nicely when you open them. And there's no reduction. And and we didn't we don't treat anything differently.
0: So you got there in 2012 uh, yourself,
1: and then what was that harvest like for you? 2012 harvest was exciting. Obviously, I mean it was my first vintage as a, a winemaker, as the head winemaker. Uh, and it was scary. You know, I wouldn't, I, I definitely won't lie about that. It was scary and intimidating. And I was thinking, what the hell am I doing here? Like, how, how am I going to do this? I've never done this before. And, uh, <clears throat> and on top of that, my first child was just born just weeks before harvest. So I came on, we didn't have a winemaker at Cade yet. Daniel Srow hadn't been hired yet. So I came on to Plum Jack thinking that I was probably going to have to start, doing Sauvignon Blanc for Cade, because we had that Sauvignon Blanc on our estate. Uh, And I just had a kid. So obviously, I was very busy at home. I was very busy at work. Fortunately, Danielle was hired just before harvest. And literally like a week later, she started picking Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, But with the addition of a child to my family, it was definitely a complicated harvest. And then on top of that, uh, 2012 was a big vintage as far as volume goes, uh, a little bit higher than normal, so we the biggest challenge for that vintage wasn't weather it wasn't uh, you know heat coming on and the risk of turning your grapes to raisins, you know, which you battle some years or a rain late in the season where you you decide you need to force a pick or something you think I need a pick because uh If I don't, then the grapes are going to be diluted by the rain. Or like in 2011, you could have some threat of mildew. Uh, We didn't have any of those pressures in 2012. Uh, What we had was that volume. And that was our biggest challenge. We filled up every single tank in the winery. And I had nowhere to press grapes to. You know, that was, it was like the circus in there, just trying to manage just the volume of wine that was coming through the door. And I actually had to rent like a tanker truck, just so I can press juice to the tanker truck, take the grapes out of the tank that they were in, and then move the, the juice back or that fermented wine back. Uh, so <clears throat> that was the, the biggest challenge for me in that vintage. Uh, but it was a lot of fun. It was, it was stressful. And it was exciting. You know, it was, very exciting, just like every harvest. Every harvest is exciting, and they're all different. When
0: they were looking at you for a head winemaker job, obviously it was your first head winemaker job. You'd, you'd worked as an analogist before in Napa, and you'd worked as an assistant winemaker. When you sat down for those interviews, I
1: mean, what were they like? It was pretty intense. We, the Plumjack team, the Plumjack group, is really into culture and company culture. And I interviewed with about 12 different people because they want to make sure, first of all, that they think that everyone thinks that I will fit into company culture, but also they want me to know who everybody is and make sure that I am comfortable with company culture and that I want to be within that culture. And so that was a big part of it was uh, just personality and and culture. And I don't know why they chose me (laughs) to be honest with you. I felt, I feel fortunate that they did uh, because I, had experience as an enologist, I had experience as an assistant winemaker, and uh, I was became the associate winemaker at Lewis Cellars uh, and then went over to Plumjack. but hadn't, hadn't really had complete control of a cellar. And so I feel like they took a little bit of a risk uh, and uh, I, I hope that it's a paying off for them. And I'm certainly excited to be there. But back to the interviews, yeah, I interviewed with, you know, obviously our general manager interviewed with our former winemaker. What uh, did he tell you? Tony Biaggi, what did he Tony, say? Uh, You know, he said, these guys are crazy. You don't ever a co for these guys. <laughs> <laughs> Run for the hills. <laughs> Save yourself. Yeah, no, no. He he didn't say much about uh, Plum Jack. He talked a lot about the, just, well, at least not about the culture and the company. He talked a lot about the winery. Uh, and just wanted to know a little bit about my experience. But we walked through vineyards. We just you know, kind of looked at things. He actually helped to mentor a little bit early on. We actually retained him as a consultant for a a number of years. And still, if I need any help, I can call on him. Uh, But that first year was definitely integral with him. He came to the winery weekly and we talked for an hour, two hours, just about questions that would pop up for me, kind of flow the winery, you know, best way to you know, set up the crush pad and how to, you know, go from going to tank and just kind of flow the winery, what vineyards are ripening faster, what kind of character I expect to see out of different vineyards, uh, and how to best use those vineyards in different blends, not just with our estate, but with some of our purchased fruit as well. So he was really big, really helpful with all of that. And it really helped. I think it was smart by Plumjack because it really helped to make the transition more seamless. Uh, and it got me hitting the ground running very quickly uh to have that resource, uh, so it was very wise uh but yeah, I did interview with him and and i don't I don't recall exactly what we discussed, but uh, but I see why they do it, and i'm I'm glad that they did so then what were the subsequent harvests like in uh thirteen much different from twelve it was actually average yield, so you know it was a little bit easier to manage as far as volume goes uh but it was it did have its challenges. And the challenges in 2013, I think, was the potential to over-extract. The wines were big. The grapes were big. Our Valley Floor Oakville fruit behaved a lot like mountain fruit. You know, we had to use some of the same techniques as Danielle would use up on Hell Mountain. And it was really great to have her as a resource, actually, because she had, you know, just a previous harvest experience at Hell Mountain, but she had some experience with Hell Mountain fruit at St. Clement where she had worked before. So, having her as resource was really valuable, and uh, I approached that vintage similar to I would you would Howe Mountain, and basically what I did was pressed a little bit early. So, the grapes were giving so much tannin to the wine so quickly that if I was to ferment to dryness uh, in that vintage, I would have wines that were just unpalatable. They were extremely aggressive. Uh, and so we saw that very early on, just the first fermenter. We saw just how quickly we were getting extraction. And so we pressed it early. And most of the lots in that vintage, we had to press early. And for me, early is four to eight bricks. And so I pressed it and then put it back in tank, keep it a little warm, and let it finish fermenting in tank before barreling it down um how mountain for example that year though in a normal vintage they're probably pressing between 4 and 10 bricks but in that vintage they were probably pressing upwards of 10 to 16 bricks because they were getting the same phenomenon really fast extractions uh, so in 13 the challenge was really just keeping the wines in check and not overdoing it because it was a year where you could easily overextract uh 14 was similar in that regard but not to the same degree 14 did have some, uh, some wines that were very easy to extract, uh, but they had others that were a little more challenging that we actually had to go dry a little bit. And we did maybe a couple, maybe two extended macerations to actually draw a little bit more out and kind of build weight and, uh, soften the structure a little bit, you know, and get a little bit more structure, but also to change the structure to be a little more soft. Uh, so we had to take a little bit different approach in 14 15, like you mentioned, was just a really short crop. And actually, it, it was as uh, a human, it was great because it was so easy. We didn't have to work hard. We didn't have really long hours. We weren't working 16, 17, 18 hours a day, seven days a week. You know, we were working 12 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, which is really manageable. So as a human, it was, it was great. But for our business as, as a winemaker, it was disappointing to have such low yields. <clears throat> but that that vintage, of the challenge was extraction but in a different way. It was trying to get the volume, the weight, the concentration to build without getting too much tannin. They weren't really extracting at kind of the same rate. You know, you're getting a little bit more tannin and less weight. And so you know, we had to just change the strategies a little bit, do warmer ferments up front to try to get more of the concentration and more of the weight without getting seed tannin. You know, so you get a little more seed tannin when you do warmer extractions uh, after you have ethanol in the wine, after you have the alcohol, so after you get through some of the fermentation, you'll start getting some seed extraction. And so we tried to get most of our extraction on the front end and then, again, pressed just a little bit early so we weren't getting the seeds, Annan. That sounds like
0: a range of vintages that,
1: you know, had some diversity. When you go to
0: bottle those, are you going to bottle them some earlier, some later, or is it a consistent time?
1: The bottling is around the same time. Uh, However, for... 2014, for example, I pulled the wine out of barrel just a little bit earlier and put them in tanks, topped it up. So I'm not getting any more oak influence. I don't have the oak that can dry the wine out. The fruit that is there will will stay there and it's safe and happy there. And then I can bottle it when we have our scheduled bottling. So we do take a slightly different approach for different vintages. It must be interesting to put it in the
0: tank and then see the texture change a little bit.
1: What the biggest change is you're blending all those barrels together. So we use... You know, for our estate Cabernet Sauvignon, for example, 22 different Coopers, maybe. Uh, So we have a wide range of Coopers. And within those Coopers, we have different forests that we're selecting from. And we have different toast levels, generally medium plus and heavy toast barrels. But some other toast strategies like medium long toast, which is just a lower flame for a longer time to achieve the same color, that medium color. Uh, But it does change the, the character that the barrel attributes to the wine. So... When you are tasting the wines out of barrel, obviously you're just getting a a small sample. You're tasting that barrel and you can see the attributes of that barrel in the wine. But when you rack it all together, it, it does change a little bit. You're actually getting a blend of all of those barrels. So different characteristics will stand out a little bit more than others. And, you know, it does add a little bit more complexity to the wine. You know, you have kind of a range of profiles that are, that the barrels are contributing to the wine. When you go through and you
0: taste a range of Coopers like that, have you had a chance to kind of form in your own mind some notes about Cooperage styles and what they complement or don't?
1: Yeah, it depends on the wine. Uh, You can get that certainly in the Reserve Cab. Uh, We use like a Darnage Barrel, for example, and the Darnage Barrel really gives the wine nice kind of uh, mid-palate weight and kind of a, a sweetness to the wine without sugar, obviously but uh, just kind of a sweet fruit and sweet notes uh, that really play well with that wine because that wine has just tons of fruit, very, very fruit forward, lots of dark black fruits. And that little sweetness from the oak really contributes to the wine and really plays well with it and, and stands out in a way. So if you add a little bit more of that barrel to that blend, you can see even more of that and see how it's uh, contributing to the wine. Uh, you see that a lot in the Syrah as well. In the Syrah, we have... Uh, some barrels that are pretty high toast and like Francois Frère barrels, for example, uh, that contribute a lot of the smoke, a lot of the toasty notes uh, and really affect that wine as well. And obviously I mentioned a little bit earlier, we have the Merlot and the Merlot use a little bit of American oak. And that American oak has a very distinct signature, a little smoky, a little sweet, a little more structure. So yeah, you definitely can pick out a few, but for the most part, the final blend is kind of a, a harmony between all the barrels. Uh, although you can get a few of those signatures standing out.
0: So, Syrah these days, I feel like a fair amount of people use whole cluster. Is whole cluster a part of anything that you do, any of the wines?
1: Yeah, we do some whole cluster in our Syrah. Uh, For me, what I like about Syrah, what I would love to emulate for Syrah would be a Northern Rhone style. Those are some of my favorite wines in the world is Northern Rhone. And... I would love to make that style of wine. And w- with that in mind, we're sourcing our fruit from southern end of the Napa Valley in the Carneros, a little cooler region, and also at Atlas Peak, which is in you know at elevation, so a little bit cooler up there as well. So that cooler weather really retains the varietal character of Syrah. It keeps it really nice and spicy. Uh, a lot of black pepper, white pepper, smoky, gamey. And I do a little bit of whole cluster fermentation on that to kind of accentuate that. It gives it more of a green peppercorn on the nose and just adds to that smokiness, gaminess, that nice spice and pepper. And it also gives it a little bit more bite in the finish, really nice structure. And this changes the dynamic of the wine. and gives it more, more complexity, you know, and gives it more interest. And I think it helps that wine to stand out amongst other Syrahs in Napa Valley. We also do a little bit of concrete on that wine as well. So that, that is something that I saw a lot of in the Rhone. Obviously, in the Rhone Valley, they use a lot of concrete. And I really admire those wines and love those wines. So I wanted to see how concrete could affect Syrah in our winery. So we went and got a couple of concrete tanks just to try it out. And it's been really positive so far. What's the change, like, organoleptically, when you have concrete? The first thing that I saw is that the aromatics change a little bit. Uh, the fruit isn't as forward in the concrete fermenter. The, i I feel I don't know if it's the the minerality of the concrete vessel that is uh covering the fruit a little bit or if it's the interaction of oxygen because concrete is a little bit more porous, so you have air kind of micro oxidizing the wine during the fermentation, and it could be that that little bit of oxygen that you have during the fermentation uh is removing some of the fruit you know so just like during aging. When you have, you know, over time, oxygen coming into the bottle, uh, the, the wine ages and the fruit diminishes a little bit. And so I don't know if it's, if it's that or if it's just the inherent nature of the vessel because it is concrete and it adds that kind of minerality character. But I feel that, uh, at least in my perception and also from some research that I've seen, that that little bit of oxygen that is coming into the ferment as well helps to stabilize the tannin and the color. I didn't know that
0: about the color part. That's interesting. Is it a egg shape or a rectangular?
1: No, it's actually kind of conical. It's uh, it looks more like just your stainless steel tank. It is cylindrical, but kind of tapered, so it's almost conical, but truncated conical. Uh, so um, you know the the walls as you're going up become narrower. Oh. You know, come in, on, come in a little bit. So that helps to push the cap down a little bit, so you have a little bit more submersion of the cap. And I don't know if that helps with the stability of the concrete or not. I'm not sure why, uh, why they did that in the first place or if it was just because they wanted to have that, that angle on that taper to the tank to help to push down the cap a little. And what about pressing for a Syrah? It depends on the fermentation. So when I'm doing the whole cluster fermentation, for example, I do a very light pressing because the stems can have so much tannin. And if you do a heavy pressing on that, you really overdo it. And th- that wine, I generally, I'm pressing off a little bit sweet anyway because the, the stems can become too dominant. Uh, so I'll press that off a little early and do a little bit lighter pressing. Uh, for the concrete and stainless steel fermentation, I do more of a typical press cycle where I'll take a, little, a few fractions, maybe two fractions really, and set those aside for a little while and see how we want to play with those. But I, I just, just don't go too heavy, just tasting the press fractions as we're going. And once I feel we get to a point where we have, we have too much tannin, then I'd stop the press.
0: So you made some changes in your time there. Specifically, it sounds like more with the Chardonnay and the Syrah than the Cabernet program.
1: Yeah, that's probably true. The, when, when I arrived, I mean, my goal wasn't to change the wine. Uh, the wine is a fantastic wine. It's reputable. It has a huge following. So... I didn't want to come in and change anything. I didn't want to change the style of the wine. I probably would would have not been doing my job if I would have changed the style of the wines. So what I just wanted to do was try to elevate the wines in some way. And one of the ways that we did that was through some of this experimentation with concrete vessels and oak tank, but also making some better efficiencies in the cellar, such as adding a better heating system to warm the tanks during fermentation so we can get higher temperatures early if we want to do something like we did in 15, where we want to hit peak temperature very early in the fermentation so we can try to get more volume out of the wine before we get that tannin. So you know, that was important, I think, in, in elevating the, the quality. But I want to do that without uh, changing the wines. I still want the wine to be true to Oakville. I want to make that Oakville Estate Cabernet Sauvignon, that Oakville Reserve Cabernet Sauvignon. And I don't want to deviate from that. So making
0: that transition from associate winemaker to head winemaker, what are some of the key things that have become important in your life that maybe you didn't realize originally?
1: I've always been a very organized person, which is why I think that I have any success at all. Uh, Some people can just kind of fly by the seat of their pants and just take whatever happens. I feel that by being organized and prepared, I can take whatever happens. Uh, I, you know, kind of, Plan for the best, but expect the worst. You know, so I have all my preparation uh, going into harvest, and I'm ready for the way it's supposed to happen. Uh, but by being ready for the way it's supposed to happen, the way I think it should happen, uh, I am also ready for when things go differently because they always do. It, it never happens the way that you anticipate uh, that it should, at least. So, being organized has really helped me to to succeed, and also. Building a team has been very important, and I and I have a, an assistant winemaker that has been with Plumjack for a number of years, seven, eight years, and uh, he is also very organized and has been integral to the, the success at Plumjack. So, uh, having a team member like that has been very helpful. Um, so, you know, those are, those are obviously very important. Uh, what has changed over the course of that time is just my, you know, my personal life having, uh, two kids since I've been at Plum Jack. You've been busy. I, I have been busy. Yeah. So two kids since uh, I had one in uh, my son in 2012 and my daughter in 2015. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And it's been very exciting, but it's obviously changed, uh, you know, my priorities and, uh, and the home life has become very important to me, uh, much more important than it has ever been. So, um, I try to be as efficient as possible, you know, in the cellar. Uh, I, I don't want to spend 16 hour days in the cellar, um, but obviously sometimes it calls for it. And uh, and I want to do the best job that I can make, the best wines that I can make. And if I need to be there 16 hours, 18 hours, then I'm there. Uh, but I try to be as efficient as possible so that I can make sure I can get home to see my family. Unfortunately, during harvest... I don't see them very much, Uh, my kids especially, because they are young and they sleep a lot, which is great. Uh, But sometimes I leave in the morning before they're awake and get home uh, after they've already gone to bed. So, uh, harvest can be a little bit more challenging now than than it ever has been, just because uh, I don't get to spend that time with my kids. Generationally,
0: would you say it's become easier or harder for someone to move from... The bottom of the ranks, coming out of viticulture or uh, enology school into head winemaking role, in, in the Napa
1: area, I think it's becoming more challenging. Uh, the number of people coming into the valley to make wine is is just exploding, and there's not a lot of growth in the Napa Valley right now. And uh, we have a lot of wineries there, but there's not a lot of new wineries. We have a handful of new wineries a year, so you really have to wait for those opportunities. When I started, just ten years ago, in my first full-time job in Napa after I did some internships and after I did some schooling, uh, I got my master's degree in viticulture and enology Uh, at that time I was able to come into groth and get a job as an enologist right away and spent three years there. Did the enologist job for a while, learned a lot in the cellar as well, but did a lot of lab work, worked closely with the assistant winemaker and the winemaker was able to pull a lot from them as far as, uh, strategies and planning goes and uh, you know just how to ferment uh, some pressing stuff but a, a lot of just cellar work and from there I went to lewis as their assistant winemaker and was able to progress from there to associate winemaker and then winemaker at plumcheck and i think now it's a little bit more challenging for people to make those leaps because oftentimes people are starting with a masters degree uh, in the cellar doing harvest work oftentimes and trying to turn a harvest position into a full-time position and then working from the cellar to an enologist position or to a cellar master position and then to uh, assistant the winemaker and winemaker so there's added steps on the front end now and i think that's just because the industry is, is more impacted it's more people that are interested and more people that are coming into the program into the winemaking program so it's become more competitive in a way. It's definitely more competitive, and you have to wait for the right opportunities.
0: Have there been other consultants at Plumjack or maybe one of the previous wineries <laughs> where you're like, "Huh, interesting what this person is telling me. I'm, I can really learn from that
1: uh, Well, like I mentioned earlier, I learned a lot from Tony Biaggi about that facility, about those vineyards and gave me a lot of insight, and so that was very helpful and And a lot of the strategies that we use at Plumjack aren't necessarily strategies that I use elsewhere. The fermentation strategies aren't necessarily the same. Uh, at Lewis, so we did a slightly cooler fermentations, you know, 87, 88 degrees. Uh, whereas at Plum Jack, we pushed it a little bit harder on the front end and then back it off later. So rather than doing 87 and then dropping it down to maybe 84, letting it cool naturally down to 84, 80 degrees to finish fermentation, you know, we push it, we push the limits around 94 degrees, uh, sometimes 95 degrees, and then cool it down. Uh, rather than letting it cool down, cool it down to the mid-80s or even lower if we don't want any more extraction or want much less extraction. So that strategy was something that I hadn't used elsewhere. And that's something that that I learned from uh, Tony just in the time that we we had spoken during his uh, consulting time with us.
0: What do you think or what did Tony say the benefit of that would be in
1: terms of taste? Mostly avoiding seed tannin, getting as much extraction on the front end as you can before you had ethanol in the wine trying to capture the weight and the density of, of those grapes rather than the tannin. Uh, so you're going to try to build a wine that has good structure but isn't aggressively tannic, doesn't have that seed tannin, and has nice weight, and nice body. Aaron
0: Miller of Plump Jack has been pushing the envelope in Oakville. Thank you very much for being here today. Yeah, thank you. Aaron Miller of Plump Jack Winery in Oakville in the Napa Valley.